Welcome to the Life's Hard Succeed Anyway podcast, where you will hear transformational stories, positive encouragement, and practical strategies to help you grow your mindset, reach your potential, live your dreams, and experience a purpose-driven, impact-filled life. Here's your host, Alan Blaine. All right, this is Alan Blaine, and I am fired up to interview our special guest and fellow Mastermind member, Joshua Brown. Joshua's mom was only 15 years old when she was faced with a decision, take the advice of her boyfriend and abort her child, Joshua, or face life alone with a new baby. Fortunately for Joshua, his mom chose to give him life. Joshua and his mom grew up on the streets of Nashville, living inside soup kitchens, church fellowship halls, the projects, and low-income housing. By the age of 17, Joshua was a drug dealer, hothead, and a high school dropout. Then, in a moment, everything changed. Joshua was in a life-altering car wreck where he experienced God say, Joshua, I love you. From there, Joshua responded through faith and repentance. He went on to receive his GED, pastoral ministries degree, and Christian counseling. For the next 22 years, Joshua served as a vocational pastor before he transitioned into becoming what he calls a, quote, minister in the marketplace. I love that. With the pressure washing company that he now owns called Brown's Pressure Washing. Today, he is inviting other faith-driven entrepreneurs to use his brand, blueprint, and coaches to grow the largest pressure washing network in the country. Joshua, welcome to the Life's Hard Succeed Anyway podcast. Are you ready for this? I'm ready and I'm honored to be on your show. So thank you for inviting me and having me on. Oh man, I'm excited about this conversation, especially after the conversation we had a few weeks ago. I'm just pumped for this. I've shared just a brief intro about who you are and what you do today. But if you could just share with our listeners kind of a little more of the backstory behind your life and bringing us up to speed, you know, again, the Cliff Notes version of how you got to where you are today. Yeah, I appreciate you asking. Yeah, the story starts actually with my mom being adopted from Kalamazoo, Michigan. And so she had two other siblings. They were divided into three different homes and hers ended up being a home that was right off of Rivergate. If you're familiar with Hooters, which, you know, probably the majority of your audience is not familiar with Hooters, I'm sure. And Waffle House, right off of Wade Circle in Madison, Tennessee. That's where my mom was adopted into. And the reason I start with her is because it played such a massive role on the beginning of our story of being fatherlessness and being you know poor and, and growing up on the streets. Many have great stories when they're adopted. My mom, not so much. I didn't share this with you, but her dad would go to prison for the things that he was doing to her at the age of 13. And her mom was addicted to pain medication and alcohol. And so every time my mom tried to share a little bit of what was going on, she would absolutely flip out on my mom and say, hey, that's not true, blah, blah, blah. So my mom had nothing. So what makes it amazing is like when she was faced with the ultimatum of making her life easier, doing what her boyfriend, you know, dude who said, I love you, he was 21, she was 15. You would think the easy way out would be to like, you have no reason not to. And uh, later on, I went to my mom and I said, hey, why'd you choose to give me life? You had no money. You had no family, no mom, nothing, nothing. And she said, I never loved anything. And if I could love something, I was going to love you. Wow. And um, when she told me that, it made me realize that it is a mother's love for her children that sometimes keeps them alive. And so our life of faith, you know, or our journey involved a lot of trauma, a lot of dudes that she would live with, that, you know, too much to probably get into at the beginning of this podcast. But when you're poor, when you're broke, when you're homeless, when you don't have a family to lean on, you grow up being very aware of your circumstances and your surroundings. They often say that those who are raised in chaos know how to remain calm in the midst of it because it's their normal. And so when we look at advantages and disadvantages in life, it's kind of like a catch-22 where it's like we grew up hard, but as a result of growing up hard, it helped us know how to handle hard in the midst of life. 
And so long story short, we moved around a bunch, ended up becoming a drug dealer, pothead, high school dropout, Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I got in a major car wreck, led me to the last night of revival. Felt like God said, Joshua, I love you. He could have said, you're going to hell. You're worthless. You're a loser. None of that. He just said, I love you. And that broke me. And uh, it's interesting how it's the love of the Father that draws us to the Father, not the judgmentalness of the Father. And, you know, as we fall in love with God because he loves us, we then try to figure out how do we love others. Anyway, so that ended up leading us into moving around. And, and when I gave my life to Jesus, from there, I ended up getting a pastoral ministries degree while in college. I met a dude who asked me to be his student pastor. We uh, had a lot of fun together, started working for him, worked at everything from a Quaker church to church plants to Westland, Nazarene type formats. And then, you know, about seven years ago, I got frustrated with being inside the church, felt like I was created for more, not to suggest there's anything not there, but, you know, we'll unpack it here in a few minutes with some of the other questions that you're going to ask. But I ended up trying to figure out how to respond to be the best version of me, not the best version of somebody else. And when I gave the pot to my pastor, he invited me. I asked to be a, a disciple of Jesus, or I wanted to know what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus. And that was what led me into Bible school. And so that's kind of the story of how I got into ministry. I really wanted to be discipled. I don't know if the church knew what to do with a young dude who loved Jesus and was radically transformed. It's like you almost either became a missionary or a pastor. And I became a pastor and 18 years later opened up a, a side hustle, which I feel like is what my identity was closer to what God had created me to do with my life. And so we can get into that a little bit more later. Yeah, I can't wait. So I'm kind of thinking I'm seeing three seasons here, the drugs and the pre giving your life to Christ at age 19, I believe. And then your season of being a vocational pastor for, I think you said 22 years, right? From early 20s to early to mid 40s. And then your last several years of having incredible success as an entrepreneur. So we'll cover all three briefly before we kind of end with the last. But going back to just a couple of quick questions of the childhood, was your mother, I mean, it's a phenomenal story, Joshua. And I'm so excited to have you be sharing a little more of it for the Life's Hard Succeed Anyway audience, because if anyone could have just had the poor me's and stayed in a path that wasn't going to serve their life and their future family and and so many others that your life is positively impacting today and just stayed in another space, you know, mentally and spiritually and physically, you could have, and you had plenty of excuses that you could have taken and you didn't. But during that season, I was curious. It's amazing to me to think about all your mom even went through, but was she also those years of kind of living I don't know if on the streets is the right word, I guess on the streets, maybe a little bit growing up with you or as you grew up, was she involved in drugs and alcohol and all that too, which you eventually got into or no? No, I don't ever recall my mom being involved. I think she was just trying to figure out how to provide for us. There was a moment where because of her past, she was starving herself to death and I was living with her boyfriend at that time and he was abusing me inside of the spots where we were, were living at. But he had a knife to me and he ended up asking me to tell my mom that I missed her and I wanted her to come home while she was in the hospital. I was a little kid. I didn't remember a whole lot, but I remember having the phone and having him telling me that I needed to tell my mom that I miss her and love her. And when I told her that, she was hooked up to IVs being fed at a hospital because she didn't want to live any further. And later on, like, you know, you don't know the whole picture of it when you're a kid, but later on, I asked my mom, we talked about these stories and I shared what this dude did. And she said, that phone call was what gave me the desire to get out of the hospital and live again. And it's amazing how that the trauma, the challenges, the difficulties are often the opportunities for life change to take place. And so inside of this story, it's like, I see nothing but God's grace, even in the midst of the darkest places that we've experienced. And we can either allow those things to destroy us or those things to make us more moldable. And for the grace of God, you know, there's a piece of scripture that says God is a father to the fatherless. And I know he's everybody's daddy, right? But 
dudes that ain't got dads that sees a piece of scripture that says he's a father to the fathers. If I showed you my birth certificate, I highlighted the spot where there's no dad inside of it. It's just my mom's name, father blank. And it's like, God's my daddy. Wow. And so God has a way of orchestrating through the worst situations and places to make good things out of it. What a story, Joshua. You're so right. And I'm so grateful for that. And uh, even though I have a father on my birth certificate, I don't have a relationship with my father. So it's not the same. It's nowhere near the same. And I'm not claiming it is, but I can relate with that so well. And it's so encouraging to me, even just to be reminded of that passage and that truth that you just shared. I know we could do a whole podcast just on your childhood. There's no doubt. I'm sure it would be phenomenal. But for sake of time, we move into the 20s and you're pastoring professionally. That's your vocation. What made you leave that? Because you you said you were frustrated with being in the church. I don't know if that's exactly how you said it, but what was it that caused you to leave that? I think you said you were called to ministry. You knew you were called to ministry when you gave your life to Christ at 19 years old. You wanted to make an impact. You wanted to make a difference now and eternally. So you went to professional pastoring. Why did you leave that? I guess that is the question. Hey, if you wouldn't mind, let's revisit the statement that you made as far as wanting to go in ministry. Yeah. Because I believe we need to unpack what our ideas are and where we got our ideas from. Because for some reason, I was under the impression until I was 42 years old, that in order to be in ministry, you needed a pulpit and you needed pews. And I believe we need to agree on what our definition of ministry looks like, because the church doesn't have a right to be the only ones to consider themselves ministers of the gospel, because in Corinthians 5.18 says that for those that have been reconciled by his blood have been invited into this ministry of reconciliation where God is making an appeal through us to be reconciled to him through Christ. And so if we're going to be biblical preachers and pastors and teachers and ministers of the gospel, I think we first need to ask the question, I would not agree with you at this moment if we're going to have a conversation that ministry has to be in the context of pulpit. But that was my introduction into professional vocational ministry, which is a mess if we don't realize that the reason we have a pulpit to begin with is to call people into the ministry of reconciliation. And so I'm unpacking a lot, but I'm basically making a statement that I'm not willing to agree to that statement of, hey, we need to be in ministry in order to be in ministry. But that's the idea that I was taught in Bible school and in the church. It was like, hey, if you want to be in ministry, come teach this Sunday school class. If you want to be in ministry, come take a job making $18,000 a year when you got two, three kids and plus work two other jobs. And now you're on this roller coaster of dating different boards every four or five years because different pastors go different directions. If you don't win the approval of different people, your God has now called you to another vocational location. And it's like once you're a part of it for a while, you're talking about a guy that was radically transformed by the gospel, why would I want to sign up for something less than making disciples? And if discipleship is life on a life, we weren't discipling very well because it was pulpit to pew two hours a week or in a Sunday school classroom. And it's like, is this what ministry looks like? And I got frustrated of running programs and events and getting people in different places. And I love the church and I love my pastors and they have been gracious and kind to me, and God has shown me so much favor. But there was something that clicked when I was in my late 30s, where it was like my number eight on the Enneagram came out of me. And I said, I am no longer going to be controlled by somebody else. I'm going to take control of my future and I'm going to figure out something else. And I ended up Googling top five businesses to open for 5K or less. And that's where pressure washing came up. I love it. Just for the record, I couldn't agree with you more. And it breaks my heart to see people put ministry in a box. I know not everyone that hears this podcast would be a professing believer in Jesus Christ as we both are, but I know many are. And it breaks my heart to see people put ministry in a box when 
for me, I've seen the church minister for sure. I've seen ministry happen there, but I've seen unmeasurable amounts of ministry happen by people like you that take their business to the streets and are using that as a vehicle and a platform to minister, to disciple, to put boots on the gospel and take it to the streets. So I love that. And I think it needs to be shared more just to open people's perspectives and minds to what each one of us can be capable of, even though we're not quote unquote in the stereotypical ministry profession or occupation. So I love that you said that. So, okay. So you're trying to figure out what am I doing? Go ahead. One of the things you just mentioned were that we may have some listeners that don't know Christ or may be questioning whether or not there is a God or if there is a God, who or what he is. And this morning I was running nine miles in in White House. Just nine miles. I love it. Yeah. Before hanging out with my future son-in-law. And while I'm running, I have the same questions that those people do. You know, those that are like, hey, is there such thing as a God? And you know, who or what does he expect and and so forth. And while I'm running, I'm just thinking about these questions about what I would say in relation to who Jesus is. And man, he's radically changed my life, my faith inside of what God has done and what I've heard and felt him say to me, both in his word and outside of his word, because he sent down the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So he also speaks so we can listen. And it's like, For those that are listening, it's like, he's radically changed my life. Like the dude that you see in front of you has been radically changed by the hope that's inside of the gospel. And so for those that are listening, my encouragement would be keep pressing in, keep talking, keep chatting, keep listening. And I believe that those who seek will find over time, but you got to be willing to seek. I appreciate you sharing that, Joshua, very, very much for all of the listeners. Why did you choose pressure washing again? You were on the internet looking for businesses to start for, what would you say, under $5,000? Yeah, I could have picked out taking pictures of people's cats, but because I was a good pastor, all cats went to hell and all dogs went to heaven. And I've repented from this sin. I've got two cats now at the house, one I like, one not so much. Uh, You're a better man than me. I don't like the young cats. I like the old cats. The young cats would get on my nerves, but... Long story short, I did not choose it. It chose me. I had a friend that I saw pressure washing on there. And I had a friend in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, that opened up a pressure washing company. I asked him if I could work with him for a half a day. And in four hours, he made more money than I had ever legally seen been made. At that time, this is embarrassing, but I would jump in Kirkland's dumpster and pull out like candles and like little things for the house. Because I lived on a pastor's salary and it was good for being in this location. But when you got four kids, money don't go very far. And so when I saw him make $800 in four hours, I'm like, dude, that is bananas. And so I ended up asking him if he would teach me to help me build a trailer. And he was so gracious and kind uh, to invite me down. And 2016 summer, I came back from church camp, started washing everyone's house that would let me wash their house. And then 2017, I opened up and we did 225000 while I'm still working at the church. And then the following year, 440, the next year, seven and some change, the next one, almost a million. And then that's when in 2020, at the end of 2020, I decided to leave vocational ministry for pressure washing, but I didn't have the whole picture as far as what a pressure washing pastor looked like, because my mindset didn't realize that you could be a pastor outside of the pulpit. But I learned that, guess what? Where do you get that idea from? You know, maybe the person selling the MDiv, but I don't know anywhere else that you learn that inside of scripture that you need to go to school for six to eight years in order to be a pastor. Right. Definitely be looking a long time to try and find that in scripture. So 2020, you did almost a million dollars. Your pressure washing business did roughly a million dollars on the side. As a side gig, you give up the pastoral profession, the paid pastor gig and go full all in, in the pressure washing. What's happened since? I guess this is your third year of quote full-time. Yeah. So I was scared, you know, leaving the uh, pastor job. It was a very kind job to me. You know, when you're a student pastor, you get to hang out with kids, you get tax deductions for housing allowance. There's a lot to give up. And I was a little scared, but as I 
step by a little bit of faith and a little bit of light. We ended up doing 1.2, 1.3 that year, 2021, 2022. We did 1.5. And then this year, we're going to do 1.8 to 2 million. The Ukraine-Russian deal slowed down 2022 quite a bit because of the prices that everything has blown up, you know, as far as gas and, and food and so forth. Right. But we're on scale this year for $2 million. Wow. And you've recently expanded the business as well, right? Tell us real quickly about that. Yeah, before we jump into that, may I share a little bit of like identity or anything like that as far as like how this intertwines with the story of opening up new locations? Absolutely. All right. So in 2020, I had investors come in from out of state and saying, hey, can we invest inside your business? And I'm like, I don't need an investor. I need a salesman because I wasn't a salesman. I really just love people in the marketplace. I didn't know that I was the same person in the church doors as I was outside of the church doors, but I was. And so these investors said, well, if you don't want you know, investment, why don't you start coming and hanging out with us at our meeting? It was called the BBB, not the Better Business Bureau. It stands for bourbon, BS, and business. And personally, not into BS, not into bourbon, but business is something I can learn. So it was a secular group. And while there, they ended up, we met at the Standard in Nashville every three months. And the, while there, they said, you're the pressure washing pastor. And I'm like, why are they calling me the pressure washing pastor? I'm just Joshua, the pressure washer. You know, like, I don't get it. But what they called was what they saw. What I didn't see is I was still the same person that I was when I was a pastor inside the pulpit. And leaving ministry, I had a huge identity crisis because I didn't know who I was without a position inside the church. For 20-something years, people would come to me and ask me, and I'd speak, and I'd lead groups and teams and uh, volunteers, and, and it's like, who am I outside of this? And so when the BBB ended up calling me the pressure-washing pastor, I kind of threw it in the back reservoir of my cognitive thinking and about a year later, after we did 1.5, I started praying and saying, God, what do you want me to do next? He said, do for others what I've done for you. You know, and so I've got that full focus journal by Michael Hyatt. And you write all these little different things down. And Curtis Honeycutt has taken me through like this little vision map. I'm not sure if you know Curtis or not, but he's part of our ISI group. And coming out of it, it was open up the largest network of pressure washing pastors in the country where you give them your brand, your blueprint, your coaching and create this massive group of ministers inside of the marketplace. And so that's what we did. And we started this year. And so this was like March is when I first announced it. I went down to Exponential in Florida, put up a little booth and started inviting folks to be a pressure washing company. As of to date, we have three other locations. We've got a Chattanooga, a Birmingham and a Houston, Texas. And it's a slow grow, but man, it's so much fun to see that you can actually start a pressure washing company with the idea of being a minister inside of the marketplace where you're able to create jobs, make money and serve the city all through this simple thing of serving those that are around you. And I've got scriptures for it that kind of support the idea behind it. I love that, Joshua. Those other three locations that are newer as of the last few months in two other states, are they franchises or how is that set up without getting too off in the weeds? Yeah, we're just doing licensing. And so basically my goal was not to control. My goal was to coach. And then licensing gives you permission to move a little bit faster and without handcuffing and paying extra inside of certain taxes. And so if you're looking at franchising versus licensing, the attorney, and once you start digging in and studying, you're like, okay, it's really an economical decision. Once you hit 10 to 12 million in revenue as a business, then you can move to a franchise. And so for us, until we hit 10 to 12 million in annual revenue, which we will in a couple of years, we will then transition into more of a franchise model. But just from the economics, it's a lot easier to get momentum through a license versus a franchise, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it makes sense. Well, what would you say you've obviously had a tremendous amount of success in a relatively short period of the last few years since I think 2016, you said you started it part-time or on the side. What would you say has been one practical key to your success that our listeners can take away from this interview? This is a very practical, but it's like 
I didn't go to college for business. And if I did, it would have jacked me up. I didn't go to other business leaders and say, hey, I'm going to open a business. What would you do? It would have jacked me up. I was a pastor who learned a trade and then invited other people, cast vision, develop leaders, marketing, sales, operation services, cash flows, starting understanding all of this. Like I didn't know any of the right rules to engage. And those that have now looked inside of the business say, Joshua, I love what you do, but I was always taught to leave religion, politics, and sex out of business. And I didn't know that. I thought we were supposed to be whoever we were, wherever we are. And so a practical way of success is to ask yourself the question, if you're a business, what the heck are you doing with your business? It ain't about you to begin with. It's about the gospel and the kingdom. It ain't about you. It's not about how much money you make. It's not whether or not people honor you, love you, respect you, and put you up high on a platform. It's like, you are Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, not I, but Christ lives within me. In the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who died for me. It's like, if you want to know what the key to success is, it's not about you. It's about a kingdom that we're able to steward. And then we love the people that are in front of us because we're not using the people in front of us. And a lot of business owners... They're there to use people rather than to serve people. And when you look at Jesus, you see a servant leader, one who didn't come to be served, but to serve. And so very practical advice is don't make it about you. Make it about the people that you're around and truly love, authentically love the person in front of you more than you love yourself. And and that's why we've experienced success. Because if I had team members that come to me and say, hey, I'm thinking about going off and doing something else man, how can I love you? How can I bless you? How can I encourage you? It ain't, how can you leave me? What are you doing? This is da, 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 da. When we have damages, it's like, yeah, we'll pay for the damages. If we mess something up, we're going to make it right. It's what Jesus would do. You know, does that make sense? It makes a hundred percent sense. And I think what I'm hearing you say loud and clear is do what's best for the person in front of you. Right. It's not about you. Jesus, when it was his time to go, he takes out his outer robe, he gets on his knees, he grabs a water basin and starts washing his disciples' feet. Those are your Christian audience. You know, Jesus gives us a model, stands up and says, do you understand what I've done for you? If your Lord and master has washed your feet, you go and wash other people's feet. And too many pastors use their congregants to get their feet washed rather than to wash other people's feet. Too many business owners, in my opinion, are there to get their stuff washed versus taking care of the people around you. And I think in reality, your parishioners and your employees know the difference between being used and being loved. Absolutely. I think you're absolutely right on that. What would you say is one of the bigger, I'm sure you've had plenty, especially in light of what you've already shared of how you grew up, but what would you say is one or more of the biggest challenges that you face to date, Joshua? Yeah, fatherlessness, and this goes into identity. I think for me, I didn't know who I was, and it was so easy to cling on to any dude that looked like a dude and say, that's who I need to be. So when Arnold Schwarzenegger came out, I'm like, dude, I want to be Arnold Schwarzenegger. And then you see, you know, Rocky, and you're like, dude, I want to be Sylvester Stallone. And then you see Tom Cruise, and be like, I want to be Tom Cruise. And then you see... As you get saved, I was like, man, I want to be Mark Driscoll, or I want to be Chandler, or I want to be Piper, or I want to be, and it's like, the biggest challenge that I face is I kept on trying to be somebody else, or finding identity in somebody else, and really, God, and I might be answering other stuff, but really, God just wanted me to be the best version of me inside of Him, not the best version of who I think somebody else is, and then try to be them, and so my biggest challenge is just a lack of identity and trying to find identity in the men around me or the different groups of people. How did you realize that? Was that been a process or was there one particular aha moment when you're like, Hey, I don't need to be like Rocky or Piper or this person or that person. I need to be who God created me to be and, and step into that and walk that out. How did you come to that point? So I think I'm still coming to that point. <laughs> So when we talk about like aha moments, I believe we all have a fallen human condition and that fallen human condition is always with us. You know, depending on what theological persuasion you're in, some people that believe in the annihilation of your sinful nature, but it's like 
I think there's times I still fall into a lack of identity inside of who God desires me to be. So it's not over. And for an example in that, the most godly dude who loved me as a kid, his name was Ron Frizzell. It was in Nashville, Tennessee. His daughter's name is Stephanie Gretzinger. She sings like worship music, but he was my student pastor as a kid. And while there, he said, hey, I would adopt you if, if I could. I love you. And this is a kid. I'm like, he loves me. I became a drug dealer. I ended up getting saved. First person I called was Ron and said, hey, Ron, I gave my life to Jesus Christ. I have always wanted to live my life and be Ron Frizzell. And this week, I'm literally jogging, and I'm like, God doesn't want me to be Ron Frizzell. He wants me to be the best Joshua Brown I can be. And so my aha moment was like this week where it's like, I'm not supposed to be somebody else. I'm supposed to be the best version of me inside of him. And that might not look like somebody else. It looks like me. And like, why not just be the best version of me? So that was this week and I'm still learning. I love it. It's a lifelong journey of learning and growing and it never ends. And that's what keeps things so exciting, especially when we know that God has a master plan for our life and we get to just keep walking in that. I just, I love that. When you look back at all the challenges you've been through up to this point, Joshua, do you feel like they're a big asset to you, even though you wouldn't probably wish a lot of that on anyone and probably wouldn't even wish to go back and go through half of that stuff again? How do you view it now, I guess? How do you look at your challenges in hindsight? You know, Andy Stanley teaches that some things are problems to solve, other things are tensions to manage. I think our past are tensions to be managed and not just problems to solve. I've met individuals who say, oh, I wouldn't go back and change anything. Really? <laughs> you know, like, do you remember what you did to blank? You know, do you remember what you did to blank? You wouldn't change that. And so for me, when I look back, there's many things I would do differently, which is called like wisdom that I would try to offer into others and say, hey, if I had to navigate you through this situation, I would implore you, I would beg you, I would ask that you would do it this way. And it doesn't mean I did it this way, but man, there's a lot of wisdom in doing it this way. And so for me, I am thankful for the pain, but I don't want to give it to my kids. I would rather them learn from my mistakes than learn from theirs. And if God desires to give them pain, so be it. But my goal is to try to nurture and try to give them the Father's love as much as I can, because I believe that's a biblical response to the gospel is for me to reveal God's love to them through the way that I treat them or to my wife, you know, fess up when you mess up. And anyway, does that answer a little bit of the question? It does. And you mentioned earlier your four children, but for our listeners, you have six now. Is that correct? Yeah, man. I, I, wild. 21, 19, 17, 15, 6, and 1. And they're all biological. And the last two have been the most challenging. Oldest three are girls. The youngest three are boys. And my six-year-old has more testosterone in his body than any one human being should be given by God. And then the one-year-old is a wild dude. And so my wife and I just celebrated 25 years two days ago. And we had a, an amazing time together, but we're like, man, we have put ourselves in this stage of life for the rest of our lives because grandkids will be right around the corner. And we're thankful, we're grateful inside of all that situation. Absolutely. Wow. So high energy, high impact lives those boys are going to have. That's exciting. I'm sure the girls too. I know it's so awesome to get to see and hear about all the impact and successes that you're seeing through your children's lives and the investments that you've made. And I know you've made that a huge priority in your life. And I know we don't have time to dive deep into that, but maybe that's a conversation for another time. Just all the things you've learned, lessons learned through parenting and all that. If you could go back in time, you know, just thinking about past mistakes and I, and I love how you answered that question. What is one piece of advice you'd give to your younger self? If you could go back in time, what would be that one? I'm sure there's many, but what would one of those pieces of advice be that you would give to yourself? This is where I wish your listeners would be 14. You know, I wish I could share this with every 14, 15 year old that's inside here. But this question, it brings about maybe pain points, you know, because how we answer what's about to be answered often comes out of this root of mistakes we've made, right? Right. So for me, 
man, I have been molested by a dude. I have held a gun to people's heads. I have done wrong inside the world. And it's like, if I could do anything, it would not to have sex before I was married. Married, The way I dishonored, you know, my girlfriend's family. If I could give anybody a piece of advice as far as, you know, raising your kids, because I don't know if there's 14, 15 year olds listening. But if you're in a mom and a dad, don't get your ideas of of what dating looks like from the world. Maybe kind of go into scripture, go into community and ask the question, hey, what does the Bible have to say? You know, there's a lot to say. It doesn't give a prescription, but it's the way that I dated is the thing that I would change. I would want to love better in the midst of my teenage years. And my love as a teenager was selfish not selfless. And I had no idea how to be selfless because the only model of love I had ever seen was selfish love. At the end of the day, if I could redo anything, I would have honored my girlfriend's family and honored her. I love that. I love that. Some great advice. What advice would you give to others, Joshua, that may be in the midst of their challenge right now? You know, I know yours was and still is an ongoing wound, I guess, of fatherlessness and abuse and all the things, but everybody goes through different challenges in their life. What advice would you give to someone right in the midst of one right now? Yeah. And so chances are there's many that are in the midst of some type of problem or challenge and you're looking for answers, you're praying, you're asking God, there might be cancer or there might be unknown, you know, sicknesses or things that have taken place. And it's like, you control what you can control. And when you have me on your show, you've got somebody that's gone through a bunch of, of garbage. And it's like, life is more about how you respond to situations than the situations that come up. You know, we can either play the role of a victim, a villain, a hero, or a guide. And I would beg your audience to respond in the midst of every struggle with grace and love. It, life is just so short. Open your hands. It wasn't yours to hold on to with to begin with. There was a time that my daughter was not breathing from her abdomen all the way down. It was purple. Jennifer yelled out to me from upstairs. I ran upstairs. She gave me a breathless little girl. This is Sydney. That's in VOL. And uh, she looked at me and just handed me Sydney. And I'm like, what am I supposed to do? Wow. I just grabbed her and I said, God, it's not mine to begin with. It's yours. And I give Sydney back to you. Sydney starts breathing. Gabriel, inside of Jennifer's womb, he was born eight weeks early. Um, She's bleeding, middle of the night. Um, My first boy, you know, I've got three girls. Jennifer's pregnant. We've got a boy on the inside. We're about 30 weeks. And Jennifer's bleeding bad. We know we have to go to the hospital. I remember looking in the mirror in Raleigh. And I remember crying and saying, God, I wanted to have this baby, but it's not mine to begin with. It's yours. And if you desire me, it's yours. And so I gave it back to God. We went to the hospital. They put the jelly on her, her belly and rolled that things around. Beep, beep. We're like, we're going to have a baby still. You know, so like there's good stories and there's bad stories. But at the end of the day, it's not our story. It's God's story. And so my encouragement to you, our listeners, would be just give it back to God, man. It's his to begin with. It's not ours. We're just called to be stewards of it. Wise, wise words. Thank you. Just some quick kind of rapid fire, 30 second type questions for you, Joshua. Do you have a favorite, maybe success quote that you would be willing to share with our listeners? Yeah, we've got probably a few, but you know, one of them I think about is Einstein's quote about a fish. Have you heard it before? I'm not sure which one you're referring to. Everybody is a genius, but if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it'll live its whole life believing that it's stupid. Right. And so, man, that's a powerful man. Just because you ain't good at something don't mean you ain't great at something. And I was diagnosed with dyslexia in the eighth grade, second grade reading level. Like I still have a second grade reading level, but I was one point away from being a genius. And, you know, the way school judges is like intelligence is based on how you perform on a test. But it's like, You can live your whole life thinking that you're dumb or stupid or not good at something. It's like you weren't created for algebra two. You weren't created for calculus. 
No, it's just mm. a world system of saying, hey, this is what we want you to do. And it's like, man, God has created us to be geniuses inside the area that we are designed to be geniuses in. But we're telling our kids that they're dumb because they can't do the things that the school says they're do. They weren't created for your school. They were created for the glory of God. Let's point them back to the creator and let him establish them in their geniuses. So I love that quote by Einstein. That is so good. Say it again. Say it again for me and our listeners. I love it. Everybody is a genius, but if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it'll live its whole life believing that it's stupid. So good. What is one habit, Joshua, that has helped you become successful? Yeah. In 2017, I could not run a mile. I signed up for the Memorial Day Classic in Hendersonville with my two daughters and we could not finish. I think our 5K was 46 minutes. <laughs> not because you had a physical ailment, just because you were that out of shape, your lungs and muscles and everything or what? Yeah, that's why. I was out of shape. I was out of shape and I had never ran. And so I started out the gate looking at all these guys that were fitter than me, wondering why they were not running as fast as me. And I'm like, dude, I'm going to smoke these dudes. And I had just eaten waffles prior to showing up, you know, and I, I didn't know that you needed to prepare for a 3.1 mile run. And right. I didn't know that you don't eat certain things and then you need water and shoes. I didn't have, like we had problems. And uh, from there I ended up saying, you know what, I, I got to do something. So I started running and now I run six days a week probably. And that habit has changed multiple habits. It ended up changing my eating habits, ended up changing what time I wake up. I'm able to add silence, solitude, gratitude. It changed my morning routine. It, it is a keystone habit. It's given me more confidence. When you meet other people, they kind of decide like, hey, well, do I want to be like this guy or not like this guy? And when you do things that other people don't do, other people are like, hey, what does he do? And so, man, that running has just propelled so many different opportunities and helped create a better version of me. I love it. How many miles a week are you running now, six days a week? So I don't run a ton right now. I joined CrossFit. So I'm doing three days a week at CrossFit and getting about 40 miles a week in inside of a run. And then I'm also helping out cross country and track at Liberty Creek in Sumner County. And so, you know, 40-ish miles and then three days a week doing CrossFit. I love it. Have you had higher mileage weeks than the 40 average? Yeah. So for me, 45 to 50 would be like my ideal week if you're not training for anything. And the problem with training for stuff is you've got to go through tapering for like a marathon or for an ultra. In December, I ran a 50 miler. And it's like you've got to taper three weeks for that. And now you've got to recover from it. So you've got four to five weeks of not enjoying nine mile days. And to me, the perfect run is a nine mile run. I love it. Like you had this morning. Yes, sir. What a great habit. I don't do as many miles as you do, but man, it's the second thing I do every morning. And I love that. What is one of the best pieces of advice you've ever received, Joshua? If I owned your business or if you have team members, I don't call employees employees. I feel like that's more like slavery. I feel like, you know, we're team. But if you have a company and you have team members, performance-based pay is the best advice I had ever been given. And that's the investor that came in. And one of the advices that he gave, he said, have you ever considered paying people on commission? I said, yeah, I chewed on it. But, uh, you know, it's just, it's simple to just pay people hourly. Within like four months, we moved everything to performance-based pay and production went up 30 to 40%. Profitability went up. People enjoy being able to control how much they make with their performance and then making bonuses on top of the key metrics that you desire to see in whatever your business. That was the best advice from a business standpoint that I've ever been given. So good. So good. I couldn't agree more. What is one book you might recommend for the Life's Hard Succeed Anyway audience? I go through about 100 books a year. And so I literally go through a ton of books. And there is one book that I have enjoyed more than any other. And our team has gone through it. And it's the book that's most quoted inside of our team. And it's not a Christian book. It's written by a dude named Dan Sullivan. And it's Who Not How. Yep. And I love that book. And it might be because that is the way I operate is I don't need to know how to do everything. I just need to know who that knows how to do everything. 
And when you pay them to do the how, everything goes better because the marketing guy does the marketing, the sales guy does the selling, the leadership might be something you enjoy. The cash flow person does the cash flow. The operation person does the operation. It's just a beautiful book. I love it. So good. So good. Yeah. Strategic coaches, Dan Sullivan's company. I was a part of it for a couple of years. In fact, my cousin and one of my closest friends, Chad Johnson was episode 18 of this podcast. If our listeners want to go back and hear it, he's Dan Sullivan's 10X coach for the program. He's been with them many years, but what a great book and a great recommendation, Joshua. I love it. How would you define success as we begin to kind of wind this down? It's a, maybe one of the most important questions I ask. What is your definition of success? Success is not a destination. It's a journey. And so for me, success is in the middle of whatever the day looks like. And so I don't see success as winning a Super Bowl, selling a million dollars. Success is the journey that you're on, you know? And so that for me, it's the everyday life work balance is success. And, you know, it's not a business. It's not having your wife say, Hey, I love you. You're the most, you know, it's like every day, just loving and stewarding what's in front of you, the good and the bad. I love it. It's not a number in the bank account either. What excites you most about the future currently? <laughs> My daughter's getting married in less than a year. I'm enjoying getting old. And when I say old, I plan to live to 120 years old. Like when people see this 100-year-old, they're going to be like, dude, what do you do for a living? <laughs> I want to be in the best steward in the world. But I'm looking forward to getting old, to watch my kids get old, to, to love my wife, to watch cross-country season this year. I'm looking forward to the opening the largest network of pressure-washing pastors and calling more individuals, kingdom-minded believers to open up a business in the marketplace and run it like you would ministry. I, I'm excited about that. I am excited about all that too. And you know what? We have that in common as well. We're both planning our lives in such a way that we're going to live to 120. I didn't know that. I don't know if you told me that before, but that's my number two. And I know God knows my ultimate number and yours. And I know you know that, and it may be one more day and I'm okay with that. But I want to be a good steward of the gifts, talents, abilities, time, my health, my body, and all that. And my goals, everything I'm planning for is 120. And it breaks my heart when I, you know, there was, I think it was an AARP study that was done, I don't know how long ago, where they surveyed a bunch of people. And I think they were all over 60 or 65. And they asked them, would you like to live to be 100? And the overwhelming majority, it was like, I don't know, 80, 90%. It was a huge number said, no, they did not want to live to be a hundred. And then they asked the follow-up question. Why, why not? Two main reasons that came back by everybody that said, no, it was fear of failing health. They didn't want to live sick and a lack of money, basically running out of money. It just broke my heart reading that study. And if anything, just drives me even more to do what we do because I'm just super passionate like you are about making a difference and, and helping people have a different vision and a bigger vision, a more effective vision for their lives. Because I was one of those guys, not that I feared living to be a hundred, but earlier on in my life, it was just like, I just didn't have a vision that was very compelling. And it obviously didn't help me to make super great decisions. So I just love it when I meet other people that have big, exciting, compelling visions and are excited about growing old. My daughter, Audrey, asked me, we had a transit van at this time, 15 passenger. She was in the very back. And I remember having the rear view mirror and she said, dad, she was a kid. She said, dad, will you be here for my, for my kids? I said, I sure hope to be. Yeah. And how can we listen and think about being in the kingdom of God and not have a vision for being here as long as possible if you want to see multiplication take place, live longer than everybody else because money and influence multiplies over time when we're using time to leverage for the kingdom of God. Your wisdom, your contacts, your cash flow multiplies the longer you live. So might as well be a good steward today. And really, I question whether or not the reality of that is a desire not to change today. Most people would rather enjoy unhealthy habits than healthy habits. I think James Clear talks about that if it brings about a great reward in this moment, it might be something you need to say no to because it's a greater reward 
in the future by saying no to an immediate reward in the present. So many good nuggets. So many good nuggets. What's the best way for our listeners to connect with you, Joshua, and follow along on your journey? Go to pressurewashingpastor.com. We got picked up by a massive YouTube company with almost a million followers, and we've built a solid relationship with them. They did a story on us that doesn't drop until September. And as a result, we believe we're going to grow very rapidly inside the pressure washing industry. And we're updating the website. It doesn't look like what it will in the future, but it's a place to connect. You can schedule an interview with me. And then if you have questions about opening up a home service business, pressure washing business, if you're a faith-driven, gospel-centered servant leader, those are the characteristics that qualify you to open up your own Browns pressure washing in your city. We're doing two million in seven years inside of our market. And so we believe we've learned something and we can help others as well. Love it. Love it. So pressurewashingpastor.com and that link will be down in the show notes below. Joshua, this has been fun. Do you have any closing comment you might want to leave our listeners with today? Oh man, I wish I had some gusto type words, but my encouragement would be listen to whatever God is speaking to you as a result of this message. And so if you've hung on this long, chances are there's something, a call to action that you're called to do. And Write it down, do it. Don't let time pass you by. Life is so short. Be obedient to the things that you believe God is calling you to, and you'll see fruit as a result of the work that you're investing in. Man, that's a great word. I love it. Action step. Take it and do something about this information and anything that God may be placing on your heart today. So Joshua, thank you so much for this time. It's been a blast, brother. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, brother. And that's it for this week's episode. I hope you got something out of this one that will help you level up your capabilities, your mindset, and your life. If you did, can I ask you to share it with others? Here's how. Either leave a quick review on Apple or Spotify, hit us with a five-star rating if you feel it's deserving, or share it on your social media and please tag me. My social media links are in the show notes below this episode. That's the best way to get this work into the hands of others who can also benefit from what we're doing here. Until next time, friends, use your adversity to create your opportunity. Life's hard. Succeed anyway.